Welcome to Playground Books, essays revisiting the stories I first read as a kid and loved enough to spend my recesses reading. One of my favorite elements of literature is a title that really sings, that does some heavy lifting in terms of the themes or mood or message of a story. It's like with poetry. Sure, you can title a poem Sonnet Number 113, or copy-paste the most frequently used word or phrase, but isn't it so much more fun to knock yourself out with a title that completely reorients the way you understand all the following lines? Or, better yet, that catches you halfway through the lurch of falling, so that you're midway through the poem before you know you've begun? When I say The Tale of Despero, you know exactly what this book is, don't you? It's clear-eyed, hunched back, sepia paper curling up at the edges fairy tale. It's legend with a lump in your throat. It's a story told while children huddle under covers, and it's holding a pun in the palm of its hand, because Despero is a mouse, so there's more than one type of tale relevant here. Noticing the work this title is doing to evoke tales of heroism and chivalry is rewarding, because this book is fully cognizant of the fact that it is such a story. What do I mean by that? My dear listener, we've got a narrator who's talking to us. Before we get into the plot, this is an excellent opportunity to think for a while about point of view and how it shapes a story. The biggest influence of this choice can be described by one word, distance. How close do you want to be to the characters? First-person point of view takes us right into their head. When Nick Carraway in The Great Gatsby says, I was within and without, simultaneously enchanted and repelled by the inexhaustible variety of life. We are right there with him, also within, also without, and his reaction to the extravagance he's witnessing isn't filtered or held at arm's length as it would be were this book told in third person. If I'm told he was within and without, simultaneously enchanted and repelled, Maybe I don't believe it as much, because even that one word change makes me aware of the artifice of description, of words chained together hoping to evoke a reaction, as opposed to one man's honest, desperate grasping at diction to convey his own experience. If you want to understand the variant that is first-person plural point of view, just go read A Rose for Emily, that'll teach you everything you need. But all of that is for first-person. Second person is the least common, and for good reason, it's very difficult to do well in a piece of prose. Second person lives in poems, it thrives in songs, where the you in question is a specifically imagined audience, the party the work is dedicated to. In stories, what you need to understand is that you isn't usually the reader. You isn't you yourself in most cases. The you in a second-person story is one of the characters, sometimes told like an offshoot of first-person, where the narrator is so fixated on one other person they can't help but be addressing the story to them, even if they're not literally speaking to them as the plot unfolds. But sometimes, you is the main character who's being spoken to. Take Jamaica Kincaid's short story, Girl, as an example. A litany of instructions received from a mother that ends... You mean to say that, after all, you are really going to be the kind of woman who the baker won't let near the bread? Second person tends to fit odd stories, experimental ones, because the idea of distance we're measuring against has a bizarre paradox to it. 
in one way, it feels very intimate reading you, 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 and thinking me, 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 before realizing that you is not me. Have I confused you yet? We'll take the path out by going to third person, the workhorse POV. Third person feels comfortable, reasonably distant while still informed and recognizable, which is both a fact of most books being written in third person and also why most books are written in third person. But don't worry, it gets more complicated because there are a few different variants. Third person limited is when third person pronouns are used, he, she, they, as opposed to first person I, we, but we're still only sticking to one character, and we only get that one character's interiority and thoughts. Often if there are chapters switching points of view in a book, we're jumping between third person limited character to character. When we're in character A's scene, we don't hear character B's thoughts, and vice versa unless we're head-hopping, which is usually a sign of bad writing, unless done very intentionally and very carefully. Alternatively, third-person omniscient, as the name implies, isn't limited to a single character, but instead lets you know everyone's thoughts. There are a few different ways to treat this. Stream of consciousness, like Virginia Woolf's Mrs. Dalloway, flowing between the thoughts of different characters. Unobtrusive third-person omniscient, mostly set from a disembodied perspective and occasionally noting the inner reactions of different characters, almost in the way of a film camera going where it wants and following whom it wants. And finally, literalizing the omniscient third-person with a characterized narrator. Finally, we can get to Despero. In this book, the narrator has a distinct voice and perspective separate from any of the other characters. They often speak directly to us, the readers, which emphasizes the fairy tale atmosphere. We are being told this story. We're not just happening across it. We begin with the introduction, the birth of the mouse Despero. He is tiny, with enormously big ears, and most strangely, he is born with his eyes open. All his brothers and sisters say there must be something wrong with him and expect him not to live long, but our contrary little hero does. Despero is bad at being a mouse. He isn't very good at scurrying, he doesn't know how to be afraid, he's entranced by music and light. When he finds the library of the castle, instead of eating the book bindings, Despero makes the discovery of stories. He reads tales of knights and princesses and honor and chivalry and courtly love. Despero is a cautiously crafted paragon of virtue, his only flaw being naive in all the best ways. There's a funny contradiction here, because the book is trying to sell me on Despero being rebellious or a nonconformist, when really every deviation is just an inclination toward heroism. So there's nothing really envelope-pushing in the book's commentary about the way we consider heroes. Maybe there's a little something to the unassuming mouse dreaming of being a valiant knight, but even that is tempered by the sheer number of protagonist mice in children's literature. Once I've read Reapy Cheap, Despero's a little too quaint to phase me. But anyway, as Despero doesn't quite understand how to be afraid of beautiful things, he follows the sound of music and meets the Princess P. Princess P is the second of, let's say, four important characters. 
She's the princess, her mother is dead, she's the embodiment of goodness and light and etc. etc. And our gallant little mouse falls in love, enough, as the book says, to break the last of the great ancient rules of mice and speak to her. For Despero's crimes, he gets a trial in front of the mouse council, and the very most honored head mouse sentences him to the dungeon to be eaten by rats. I want to note all the little details. This happens in all of Kate de Camilla's books I've read. But there is such care taken over such small details that almost by themselves they are elevated to magical realism. The mythos and history of the Mouse Council, presided over by the very most honored head mouse, and the ritual where the Threadmaster ties a loop of red thread around Despero's neck for him to be led to his fate, is so beautifully and fully realized. Later, when Despero talks to the king, he calls him the very most honored head person. It's so lovingly crafted. There's also two moments here where the distinctive use of the narrator shows its worth, and it's when depicting the reactions of Despero's parents. They're such minor characters in the scope of the story, but both really are fully imagined. His mother is excessively dramatic, swooning over her makeup, and his father is quietly yet perpetually distressed both the one to call the mouse council to order, and to regret it most. Here are the two passages. Those opposed say nay. Silence reigned in the room. The only noise came from Lester. He was crying. And thirteen mice, ashamed for Lester, looked away. Reader, can you imagine your own father not voting against your being sent to a dungeon full of rats? Can you imagine him saying not one word in your defense? As Despero is taken away, there is this. Adieu is the French word for farewell. Farewell is not the word that you would like to hear from your mother as you are being led to the dungeon by two oversized mice in black hoods. Words that you would like to hear are take me instead, I will go to the dungeon in my son's place. There is a great deal of comfort in those words. But, reader, there is no comfort in the word farewell, even if you say it in French. Farewell is a word that, in any language, is full of sorrow. It is a word that promises absolutely nothing. Because the narrator has the agency to step into the telling of the story, we can have this direct appeal to the reader, saying, imagine this, put yourself in this moment, in the spot of this character, and understand how it feels. It would be cheap if overdone, but... In this context, and with the surrounding trappings of solemn and serious proceedings with real weight, it works to let the pathos sink its teeth in. Despero is cast down into the darkness of the dungeon and found by the jailer, Gregory, who offers to save him in exchange for a story. He says, Stories are light. Light is precious in a world so dark. Begin at the beginning. Tell Gregory a story. Make some light. And that is where we leave Despero for the moment. One detail that I didn't mention about the structure of this story is that it's broken up into parts, titled as books. I've just taken you through Book the First, A Mouse is Born. Next up is Book the Second, Chiaroscuro. Guided by our narrator, we backtrack the timeline of the story to a few years prior to be introduced to our third main character, a rat from the dungeons of the castle named Chiaroscuro. Chiaroscuro is a being of the darkness, entranced by the light, and in that way he's just as unlike other rats as Despero is unlike other mice. The metaphors abound, though they are not complicated. 
He is born into an existence of darkness and malice and suffering, instructed only in how to prolong misery and scorn beauty. Yet he finds himself unwaveringly drawn to the dazzling promise of light and life and joy from beyond his known world. Roscuro ventures into a party in the castle upstairs, and by accident he falls from a chandelier into the soup bowl of the queen, Princess P's mother, causing her to have a heart attack and die. As a result, the king outlaws both soup and rats, and Roscuro's last view before fleeing is the anger and disgust and hatred on the princess's face as he looks back at the warmth and light he only wanted to share in. He vows, I will have something beautiful, and I will have revenge. Both things, somehow. There are those hearts, reader, that never mend again once they are broken. Or if they do mend, they heal themselves in a crooked and lopsided way, as if sewn together by a careless craftsman. Such was the fate of Chiaroscuro, the narrator tells us. How he seeks his revenge involves our final main character, introduced in Book the Third, Gore, the Tale of Midgery Sao. But I want to pause before we move on to Midgery to comment on names in this book. Much like choosing the right title to fit tone and multiply meaning, Coming up with the correct character names is a monumental challenge that can do so much heavy lifting in polishing the shine of a story. Despero, it's such a beautiful sound, very French, very ornamented and old-fashioned, but it means despair. He's named by his mother for the trial of his birth, but it's such that within this story, we have a tiny despair wandering around. Despair is not a thing to be trivialized or ignored, but to be faced head-on with courage. It's a quaint little paradox only upped by chiaroscuro. Chiaroscuro is a painting term used to describe a particular use of light and shadow, harsh contrast between brilliant highlights that draw focus and the darkness just beside it. I learned about chiaroscuro when studying Rembrandt, and what struck me most was the sense of haunting unrealism it gives paintings. The harsh flash only reflected by particular faces, the skin, the folds of fabric, made starker by the encroaching, swallowing darkness unblemished by the light. Of course, this is all very fitting for, as he's described, our light-bedazzled rat. There's a sharp bittersweetness to the juxtaposition, some kind of regret. Okay, I need to tell you about poor Midgery Sow now. Talk about evocative names. Midgery's story goes like this. There is a girl whose mother dies and whose father sells her for, quote, a handful of cigarettes, a red tablecloth, and a hen, to a man who abuses her horribly, boxing her ears every time she makes a mistake or doesn't understand an instruction until she has such bad hearing that she never understands instructions and forever makes mistakes. But like Roscuro, she is gifted a glimmer of tantalizing hope when one day she sees Princess P riding by in a parade, and Midgery becomes enamored by the idea that she too could be a beautiful princess. Eventually, Midge comes to work in the castle and is given the task of bringing food down to the jailer, Gregory. Finally, all her characters come together. Gregory smuggles Despero out of the dungeon in a napkin on the food tray which means he is in position to overhear when Midge hears a voice out of the darkness. 
the voice of a rat that, just by bad luck, is the right tone for her to hear. Midge is waylaid and convinced by Roscuro that they could work together to kidnap Princess P and bring her down into the dungeon, with the promise that Midge could take P's place as the princess. Roscuro is lying to her, of course, but Midge isn't very bright. Quote, the rat's real plan was, in a way, more simple and more terrible. He intended to take the princess to the deepest, darkest part of the dungeon. He intended to have Midge put chains on the princess's hands and her feet, and he intended to keep the glittering, glowing, laughing princess there in the dark, forever. This gives us our ultimate challenge, as Despero sets off seeking help to protect Princess P, serving girl Midge dreams impossible dreams, and Roscuro's twisted heart inches closer to his retribution. The tale of Despero is built on this modeled cast of characters, this bunch of the unwanted and the misunderstood. Yet all of them are held together by our narrator. And really, I have to come back to this again, because the point of view gives such a particular verve to the telling of this story. It's what I remembered most when I was coming back to it. In the way of a storyteller who can't hide their affection for the work they've created, there is an inerasable love for all the characters expressed by the voice of the narrator. Each is allowed to be the protagonist of their own tale. I mean that both literally with the separation of the novel into different books, but also just in the treatment of each character's motivations and fears and internal conflict, as well as the actions they take to push the larger narrative forward. All are validated even if they're not right. All are given the respect of being important. For a book whose characters have names like Chiaroscuro, it's almost unsurprising that the climax is constructed out of striking visuals. The smallest, bravest mouse with a needle from the Threadmaster tied round his waist on a red thread, approaching a dark, twisted rat, gloating and wearing a soup spoon as a crown, and a girl with cauliflower ears and a carving knife, down in the labyrinthine blackness of a dungeon to save a princess. Despero was following all his reading to behave as a knight, but fortunately the story isn't so simplistic as to devolve into just a hasty action scene devoid of character-based drama. Instead, the tension is unraveled, first by P's compassion and her willingness to ask Midge, for the first time in Midge's life, what she wants, as opposed to pushing and directing and tricking and punishing her. And then, perhaps even more powerful than compassion for a sympathetic figure, forgiveness for a hated enemy. The narrator tells us, I think, reader, that she was feeling the same thing that Despero had felt when he was faced with his father begging him for forgiveness. That is, P was aware suddenly of how fragile her heart was, how much darkness was inside it, fighting, always, with the light. I was poised to shake my head at the character of Princess P before this passage. This character, who is light and goodness embodied, noticed first and most often for her beauty, which is so frequently the fate of female characters whom the author didn't bother to conceive as real people. What's her personality like? She's beautiful. What's her characterization? She's a figurehead, a Dulcinea, a muse. Give me a break. That's not a person. Before this point in the story, P is the main character with the least amount of agency, a placeholder, basically, for Despero to love and Roscuro to hate and Midge to envy. But DiCamillo knows better than that. And two things happen here in the culminating scene. P takes control, 
It is her choices that decide the outcome, and her actions that save herself and all these other unwanted misfits. But also, we are made aware of the conflict in her. She is not pure good. It is not easy for her to do the right thing. She feels temptation to fall into hatred. We want to believe in a clear dichotomy. The rats and the dungeon and the darkness are evil. The upstairs and the light and the mouse are heroic good. But even Princess P, glittering, glowing, laughing Princess P, has darkness in her heart, as we all do. In each of these characters, there is chiaroscuro, light and dark arranged together. Even after all four return up to safety, they're happily ever after, labeled as such by the chapter title, in another nod to the awareness of this book as fairy tale, is not quite so simplistic. Although given freedom to go back and forth between the upstairs and the dungeon, Roscuro never truly belongs to either place, and he never truly erases the damage to his crookedly mended heart. But in the end, Rat and Mouse, Serving Girl and Princess, can all choose to sit at table together. There is one final note from our narrator, included in a short coda. Coda is a great word, by the way. It comes from the concluding end to a piece of music, and means a final remark, one last edition. More books should have codas. Anyway, in this coda, the narrator reminds us how Gregory the Jailer told Despero, stories are light, and hopes that they may be imagined whispering this story to us, just as Despero whispered his story to Gregory. Quote, in order to save myself from the darkness, and to save you from the darkness too. The power of a narrator is in making a story a communal experience. I am not alone in reading this book, because there is someone telling it to me. Someone who loves the characters enough to believe that there is both light and dark in each of them. Someone who believes that this story, with both light and dark in it, is one that deserves not only to be left on a shelf to be singly discovered, but to be told, to be shared. Thanks for listening. The music is by David Hillowitz. The book is by Kate DiCamillo. The opinions are by me. For the next episode, I'll be rereading Tuck Everlasting by Natalie Babbitt. Talk to you then. Thank you.